Hi, everyone, and welcome to Bywater Solutions' first podcast. With us today, we have Joanne Ransom. Welcome, Joanne. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, so my name is Joanne Ransom. I'm from Horofanua, uh, which is in Levin, a small town in Levin. And we were uh, the, I was part of the original development crew for Koha 1.0 back in 1999. I'm I'm at the tail end of a three-month world tour, and I've been visiting uh, various parts of the Koha community around the globe, uh, chiefly the Northern Hemisphere, to be honest, but uh, meeting with libraries and visiting um, librarians and vendors and developers, and it's uh, it's been a really terrific um, thing to do. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to launch into a few questions that we've received from not only Bywater's internal staff, but also uh, our Koha customers. Mm -hmm. Um, so the first question we're going to ask is, uh, what was the determining factor in deciding to create your own ILS um, rather than using an already existing proprietary system, um, you know, when we were doing this evaluation um, down in New Zealand? Okay. So it was 1999, and we were facing a Y2K bug. Uh, we're quite a small, um, a small population. So as a district, 30,000 ratepayers. So we don't have a big rating base. We uh, we went through an RFP process and we, you know did the traditional path and got a stack of proposals back and found that none of them were exactly right for us. Um, they were all too expensive, not just for the LMS, but for the telecommunications costs around that. So we had a, we had a real problem. We, we just couldn't afford them. And also none of them did what we wanted. Most of them were too big. You know, we're a small rural New Zealand town. Uh, we showed them to Chris Cormack, and who was one of the um, one of a developer that we've been using for some time, and Rachel Hamilton Williams, who was a web designer, and Simon Blake, who was a network engineer, and they observed that none of them used um, worldwide web technologies. And you know, you know, we thought the internet was probably the way going forward, um, so we were interested in that. And then Chris wondered, how hard would it be to write a library management system, you know, using WWW protocols? Uh, and we reckoned we could do it fairly cheaply and quite quickly. Um, and so we did. So that was really the driver. We couldn't afford anything else. And none of them were future, were focusing towards the future with internet. Yeah. What would you say some of the major challenges were? And, you know, did you get pushback from, like, government or the community at all? So everyone says, don't write your own software. Don't write your own LMS. You know, that's a core piece of advice. We were kind of unique in New Zealand in that we had a, we were a charitable trust. So we were a trust that had been set up by our local council with a board to deliver library services in the district. But we had a fixed budget. Um, we could go back to council for extraordinary costs. So we could go back once for a chunk of cash for this big software upgrade, but we weren't to keep going back. Um, the board at the time were comprised of businessmen um, and really passionate about libraries, but also in a position that they would make pragmatic decisions. You know, on balance, this was, you know, having balanced the risk, they were quite comfortable about going forward with developing our software. The biggest challenge was time. We had 12 weeks, so, and that, that was a huge challenge. Um, and we just, we just had to, to push to, to do it. 
So the librarian's jobs were to describe how a library worked, Chris, and Chris would code it, send it back to us, we'd test it, see if it worked. If it did, we'd pass it over for the web design for Rachel to do the web pages. Um, and if it didn't work, we'd send it back to Chris and he'd fix the code again and send it back to us. So hard and fast. That time was the real pressure. Um, we had one day off in three months, and that was Christmas Day. So, and Chris was still coding at 9 o'clock in the morning on the 5th of January, and we went live at 10, so time. But, but you know, we were still standing at noon, so we got away with it. 12 weeks is crazy. I mean, there are some features within Koa that take longer than 12 weeks to develop, let alone yeah, the entire IMS. That's, that's nuts. It was 1.0. It was small town library system, small town librarians. We only did what we needed. It was nothing like the Koha that you see today. You know, we, it was just a, a really a starting point. There was no mark or anything. We just did what we could do that was what we needed. Uh, yeah, so, you know, you, you can't kind of, we didn't write what you've got now. It was very much a starting point. Cool. What about um, your staff in the library? Did, did you get any pushback from them or was the buy-in from day one? So we had a, a library manager who was an extraordinary leader and we all knew that she was innovative and um, she took risks. You know, she, she was a leader and we, we completely trusted Rosalie Blake um, and she'd made this choice. And, and I remember talking to her because I was her deputy saying, Look, are you sure you want to do this? You're coming up to the end of your career. It's been a stellar career. Um, if this goes wrong, is this, you know, what you want to end on? And she was absolutely sure that this was the right way to go forward. Um, and so, and, you know, one, you know and, and I felt once she had kind of, you know, my role was to question her, you know, when you always want someone who's your deputy to, 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 to challenge you and to test. And she convinced me that, no, she was absolutely sure this was the right way forward. And then from that moment on, completely sold. And it's kind of exciting. You know, creating something new is really exciting. And it was stimulating and challenging. And, you know, we're librarians. This is our profession. So we're, we're using our professional tools and we're deciding and thinking. Um, you know, we created, you know, Ferber 1.0. We had a Ferber arrangement. Now, it, it broke when Mark came in, but, you know, we created that. So professionally, really exciting, amazing thing to be involved in. No kickback from staff. You know, we had a problem. We needed a new system. This was the answer. This was the track we were on. We trusted the leader. And wait for it. Amazing. Um, so at what point in Koha's almost two decades did you see it changing from just small and you know local to like this international huge uh, you know system? It's a movement love. We call it a movement now, okay. <laughs> really we always joked right from the start we want to take over the world. You know, and we laugh about it. We're going to take over the world. You know, Koha's going to rule the world. You know, the one LMS to rule them all, you know. So we joke about it. Um, but, hey, that's happening. So, you know, we always kind of joked and hoped that might happen because it made sense to us to not have a proprietary system, to have, to have a, a system that we create together and that we share together and that we collaborate on together. That's what librarians do. We work together and we give stuff away. So it, it's a perfect fit for the profession. Um, incredibly early on. So we released the code, and as the sun came up around the globe, 
you could see it being downloaded. So really early on, we knew we'd struck a call. Wow. So, you know, within that month, we had 30 people on a discussion list, and then there were 86 downloads of code. Um, we had a translation happening really early from Poland. We had students in America writing enhancements to the, to the system. So, you know, this kind of, it, it got picked up really quickly. In terms of scale, in terms of, you know, like really big, not just small systems, um, Steve Tonneson in British Columbia had it in a, in a school system really early, like 2000, I think, with six or seven libraries. So it went very quickly from just our little one to a, to a seven library consortia. Um, and, and just, you know, leaps and bounds, really. So, so we, um, I hope this comes up later, but we kind of developed 1.0. It was exactly what we wanted. It was finely tuned to the librarians' needs of a small town library in New Zealand. And then we made a mistake in that we didn't stay involved enough. So we did our bit, we made it free, and then we kind of just carried on doing our work. And for about 10 years, I guess, we weren't engaged. Um, and we'll talk about that later if you'd like. But so we kind of, when, when we came back into it, it was like, whoa, it's huge. So. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, that kind of ties into our next question, which is a two-parter. Um, you know, what, if anything, surprised you the most about the co-op project, um, you know, from the get-go? And is there anything that you would change about the way you did things if you could go back? Oh, well, we, if, if I could have my time again, I would have stayed involved right from the start. So the very, the biggest upgrade that came in early was the introduction of Mark. And Mark completely broke our further arrangement. And we loved our further arrangement and our patrons loved it. So we, our work was broken. So we just stayed on our, um, we stayed on Koha. But of course we became isolated on a fork. And we truly were on a fork for 10 years. Because Koha moved on beyond us. It went past us and carried on and got better and better and from strength to strength. It did mean that when we wanted to upgrade, when it was kind of patently obvious that Koha was this incredible LMS that we wanted to have, um, it wasn't a straightforward process to migrate from what we were on to this new baby. And it was like a whole new software system um, and really painful. And, you know, we lost a lot of the features that we really loved. Um, and, you know, we, we mourned those, but actually we gained so much more. So I guess on hindsight, we should have stayed with the project, defended our decisions, explained what we were doing, been involved, you know, much, much more. Um, and then advice going forward is always stay within one or two releases or, or patches of current just because it makes it a, a seamless, painless exercise to upgrade. So here in the U.S., we still kind of have this fear of libraries moving to open source, primarily because of the misconceptions behind the need for internal IT staff. What would you say to these libraries, librarians, to like kind of help them get past that fear? And how do you think as a community we can like overcome some of these fears, obstacles that these libraries have about moving to open source? You know, I'm kind of, I don't know what a full-time Koha IT person would do. I mean, Koha is really stable. Once you're in, once you're 
up and running and it doesn't break it nothing it doesn't go wrong you know there's a bit of work doing the conversion but that's work that needs librarians heads how are we going to arrange our collection so that it um so it suits our community you know that, that's librarians work for years we hosted our own server on site and we had it support provided by a vendor uh, and then in the last three years we moved, we got our server needed replaced and we thought, we don't need it on site. So now it's hosted by our vendor. So um, I don't know, maybe proprietary library systems are high needs or something and need IT staff on staff, but certainly that's not our experience with Koha and I I don't, I don't know of anyone that has a full-time Koha IT support crew. Actually, no, I do. There's... Um, there's a, a, there are places who want full support, who want to have their own IT team in-house providing and supporting Koha, and they don't use vendors at all. So for us, it makes sense that we buy in the services from a vendor as and when we need it. Um, and you can either do that with a full support contract or just on a paper hour for time used. But I know that there are some libraries that prefer to do it entirely themselves, and that's fine. You know, there's always... Um, maintenance to do on a whole big system I guess but yeah no <laughs> you don't need a dedicated full-time IT guy person I don't know what they do is that is that misconception does that exist in New Zealand at all or is that just a preposterous idea that it would be any different than using any other ILS system that's supported by a vendor the biggest problem in New Zealand is there's some there's some belief that Koha is not big enough now, we're a country of four million people, okay? There are, there are cities twice that size, three times that size, four times that size. Cars run by whole, whole states, whole countries. So, you know, there's this crazy misinformation in New Zealand that Koha isn't kind of big enough. Um, but I think it's more cultural cringe, really. If it was developed locally, it can't be as cool as something developed in America or Europe or something. I don't, I don't understand it at all. Um, so I don't want to talk about New Zealand because it's kind of really disappointing that everywhere you go in the world, people think, oh, yeah, yeah Koha, New Zealand, you must all be using it. Um, and our, our government departments are all using it, but um, our public libraries aren't. There's kind of eight of us who are using it and love it and just don't understand why other library systems are choosing to pay really huge amounts of money for um, a library management system that actually is nowhere near as good. Mm -hmm. um, is, is different is missing so many features that we've had in Koha for years and we just count as absolutely basic core features so yeah so now let's put New Zealand aside because um, <laughs> well it sounds like you have a similar problem there as we have here just for different there's different misconceptions that exist you know um, robustness isn't as much of, of a fear here it's, it's just you know, there's a, there's a feeling as though if you use open source, then, you know, your IT needs are going to go through the roof because I don't even know why. Like, I can't even, you know, put my finger on it, but it's there and it's prevalent. And the biggest thing we get is we can't use Koha because we don't have a big enough IT staff. Well, yeah. You turn Koha on, you make it work, and then you walk away. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's web-based, so you actually need less of an IT staff. But. Absolutely. And you can have a vendor from anywhere in the world. Like, you, you, you know, you, you can change if you don't like, and like I've been saying this as I'm going around, it's like you're buying a service from your vendor. You're not buying a product. You can have the product for free. Just download it. It's yours. So you're buying a service. If you don't like the service you're getting from your vendor, then go to another vendor. Like it's no problem. You don't have to change your LMS to change your support provider. Um, 
and, and you, you just don't need that much support. You know, you can if you want it, but you don't need it. Many of us just turn it on and run it. Great. So this next question, oh wait, I just asked the last one, sorry. Go ahead, Jess. Okay, so um, was there any specific ILS that you looked at uh, when you were working on, you know, coming up with Koha and, and, and designing what you wanted in an ILS? Um, if not, what was the decision to not look at another ILS and kind of just start from scratch? So we were running a DOS-based system, a 12-year-old DOS-based system called Catalyst, and it was developed by a company in Christchurch, New Zealand, and it was really good. It was rock solid. You know, for 12 years, it did everything we needed, but it was not going to survive Y2K. Um, and the company had been purchased by an Asian um, an Asian company, and the service levels had changed, and, you know, it was we needed to move to something else. You know, the, the deal breaker... It was just that we couldn't afford anything else. It was pure economics. Now, there were, there were all sorts of systems available, but, but they were all really big and highfalutin and just like we couldn't afford them. Not just the system, but the telecommunications. So we had a system at the time where for three cents a day you could talk as long as you like in a phone call. So we'd dial up over copper lines every morning to our branch libraries over a modem We'd operate the library all day long for three cents and then we'd hang up. So our telecoms costs were really cheap. All of these new systems required a leased line, a T1 line or a frame relay system. And um, the telecoms costs were going to kill us um, ongoing on top of the cost of the software. So that really, I mean, we really didn't have many choices. We couldn't afford what was on offer. Cool. So um, this is a kind of a long one. So Coho's vitality and growth has mirrored that of other successful technology projects from the late 90s and early 2000s, like Facebook, Google, Twitter. There were a ton of them. Um, what's unique about Coho is that it lasted. Many of the companies that came out during that time did not. Um, Yahoo and Vine Video are two examples most recently. Um, what factors do you think have led to Koha being a success in an ever-changing technology landscape? And how can it continue to be so? Koha is, is, would be just a bunch of code without a community. So the, the defining difference with Koha is that you're part of a movement. It's not a company. There's no Koha company, Koha organization, Koha board. Um, it's, it's the people who is, it's the Koha community around the globe over the last two decades who have nurtured and grown and developed Koha. Um, you know, there was a really ugly period in our history with a PTFS Liblime um, episode, and, you know, we survived that because we couldn't be bought. You know, we couldn't be shut down. We couldn't be taken over because nobody owns it. Nobody Nobody is Koha. It's, it's a movement, and it belongs to all of us around the world. Um, and, you know, I guess on paper the Koha community shouldn't work as effectively as it does because it's kind of a bit too loose, but it works incredibly well. And I think it's that diversity and the, and the, the many people involved and the fact that it's not dependent on individuals. Um, Chris Cormack said to me just a couple of months ago, you know, I could stop participating in Koha right now 
and it wouldn't make an iota of difference. You know, koha is absolutely such a strong movement because it's not about individuals. It's about the collective and it's about the community. So I absolutely think that's the strength. That's brought it to where it is today. And that's its future is secured because of this community. You know, 88 active developers working on koha last month. <laughs> it's bigger than any proprietary competitor. That's a huge amount of brain power, man hours. It's a huge amount of investment that's going into the software. And that's community. That's great. And, and I love the idea of, um, you know, the, the Liblime issue that you brought up. I, I think that was one of the defining moments in the community because if there were a dominant Koha company at the time, it was them. And when they went off the reservation, a lot of people were worried that there would be huge repercussions, but there weren't. I mean, you know, there was some drama, but um, it was a hiccup at most and other companies stepped into their place <clears throat> and uh you know did what they should have done so it, that was a great point and uh i think that shows the, the the strength of the community i'm glad almost glad it happened because it's proof that it truly is a, a vendor independent movement well looking back now of course at the time it was really brutal and it was really horrible it was like how could they <laughs> what <laughs> um because lipline were a huge trusted valued member of the community um but i guess you know anyone can you know if a check's big enough, then all sorts of things can happen. Um, but, yeah, on hindsight, it really did pull the Koha community together uh, and showed us that we weren't dependent on any one player. So we have a question that came in. Um, someone asked if you could speak to the meaning of Koha. How do you feel about, about Koha? So Koha is uh, the name of our, of our software, and it's our gift to, to the world. And koha comes from the Maori language, which is our indigenous people of New Zealand. And it, it means a gift, but it's a gift with strings. So it, and it, it's, it has connotations of generosity as well. So if you go to an event, any event, a funeral, a wedding, a meeting, um, you would take a koha with you. And it might be a local speciality. So it might be um, you know, fresh fish, or it might be a truckload of vegetables. It might just be a big check. Um, but you always take a koha with you, and it's it's an amount that you're able to afford and that you, you choose the extent of the koha, and you give as much as you can afford, um, and nobody will judge you. For, if you can take nothing, then you take nothing, and that's fine. Come in, enjoy. Uh, and then when people come to you, they will do the same thing. So there's a level of um, – it's, it's a contribution. That, you know, and it shares the cost of holding an event. It shares the cost of developing koha among us all. So it was a perfect fit. You know, we would produce what we could and make it available for everybody. They could have it, download it, improve it, make it better, change it. But the deal was they then shared those enhancements for everybody else to benefit from, and, and that just carries on. So uh, it was the right, exactly the right word for what we, um, for our lovely gift to the world. And thank you very much for giving it. <laughs> um, so during your three-month tour, um, what has surprised you the most, or can you maybe call out some highlights from your travels um, and visiting Koha users throughout the, the globe? Yes. I wanted to go on my tour to show my gratitude to the Koha community because we created something really little and small 
for us and set it free. And it needed a community to embrace it and nurture and grow our, our little seed into something wonderful. And I feel so grateful to the, to the world for that. So grateful. And so I just, I had three months um, from leaving one job and starting another. And I really wanted this opportunity to go and meet people and communities who have, um, who have done that for us, you know, <laughs> done it for themselves, but done it for us as well. So I went with a, um, with gratitude in my heart. And what I hadn't expected was this reciprocal gratitude back that people were just so grateful that we did it and so pleased that I came to visit and so generous in their hospitality. And I, I thought it was like all about me. You know, I was getting something out of this. And I realized really quickly, no, it's absolutely two-sided, that people were really so proud and pleased that I'd come to visit. Um, and sometimes it was, it was, you know, the universities in Malaysia were incredible. They're so generous and so hospitable. And, you know, I worked in, walked into a library in, in India and this lady said, look, I'm the world's biggest Koha fan. Um, you know, talking to another public library in India and the board were beaming and so proud of their library and that they've got Koha and so grateful that we made it available. So that any community that wants to have a library and a library management system can. Um, yeah, so I, I, I hadn't expected that, that level of um, we were mutually grateful and and. Yeah, that surprised me. I thought it was all about me getting something out of it, but it's it's kind of worked both ways. I'm giving you a virtual hug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a hugger, and I've had so many hugs. <laughs> yeah. I think I've startled a few people, but that's just who I am, you know. <laughs> me too. Uh, okay, so last question. Where do you see Koha going in the future? So in the terms of thinking about Koha going forward, I think it's just starting to reach um, a critical mass. I think it's just about to start becoming a major player in, um, in Asia in particular. Um, and certainly talking to my hosts in Malaysia, talking to my hosts in India, I can see that it's really going to, um, to become very big in those countries. But also, you know, through Europe, in Berlin, in Czech Republic, in Vienna, um, it's becoming a really obvious choice um, because it is a fully featured, scalable LMS. Um, the universities love it. Public libraries love it. You know, you can operate it to any level that you like. You can have a really basic, simple install and only use some modules, or you can go all out and use everything. So I, I think it's just starting, I don't think it's anywhere near a peak yet. I think it's just starting to really take off. And I think the growth that we've had till now is, uh, is just part of the ramp. <laughs> I think we're just kind of approaching a starting line, to be honest. Um, and, you know, and that kind of has, you know, we need to think about that. Is the existing way that the community organises itself, is that going to be um, strong enough and robust enough going forward? Because I know in almost every country I went to, people were talking about vendors um, and developers and libraries that are not playing, that are not adhering to the philosophy. You know, the Koha concept, the open source sharing concept, um, where, they, you know, they're taking the code, they're doing enhancements for clients, or clients are paying developers to do enhancements, and they're not sharing it back. Or major in development work is being thought of in an office in a country somewhere, 
without going through the community process whereby you know you issue an RFC you signal to the community look we're looking at doing some work on this and then other interested developers can join with you we work out a collective way forward um, and that work is part of the main thread um, I'm I'm a little nervous because I see everywhere I have gone I can see um, forks of koha which are not unhealthy in themselves but there's a real issue with that if libraries think they're buying open source and they're buying koha because it is open source and they're getting support and if they don't insist that their work is done in concert with the global koha community then the very next upgrade their work's all lost and it's a false economy and actually as a library manager spending ratepayer money that's really um that's not cool so, so I'm kind of aware of those issues. And this wasn't just in one or two countries. This was almost everywhere I went. There were people saying, this is really bad for Koha. You know, it is a global movement. You know, we need each of these um, development communities to be involved because that makes us all stronger. And so I don't know the answers. And maybe at the end of this tour, all I'm going to come up with is a list of observations, maybe some questions. And as a community, we need to think about how we want to go forward with that. Um, I'm also aware that there's a whole lot of work that could be done that would benefit us all that no one company or library can possibly fund. Um, things like marketing koha. Everywhere I go, it's like, you know, we want to be able to tell a story. You know, what is the true story of koha? What are the benefits? How does it stack up? Now, if we could have a toolkit of resources that anyone who wants to, um, to, to, get, to get koha can, can access, you know, that's a resource that we could all be collaboratively funding because it benefits us all. Um, likewise, rewriting some of the underbelly code. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff in there that you'll get no actual immediate benefit from, but we all would benefit from it, so we need to be co-funding that kind of work. So I'm, I'm, and I'm thinking about that going forward. Um, some of the tasks in Koha are huge. Um, being a release manager, for instance, it will be really incredible if whoever got that role was funded a 0.5 FTE for instance um, because the whole community needs that work to be done we all benefit from it but there are very few vendors around the globe who could actually afford to take that amount of staffing hours out of production so so you know that needs to be done but largely as volunteers and this works worthy you know it's worthy of being funded it needs someone operating at a fairly high high level um, you know, it deserves to be a paid position. So how, how do we coordinate that? Because, you know, Koha need, is going to only ever need more of that work. So I'm, I, those are the issues starting to come forward. And I think we might need to start having discussions about, you know, so what happens if this does suddenly double in the next couple of years? Is the current way that the community works going to cope with that? Is this the optimum model or is there a different model that maybe we should consider? So. Great. I talk a lot. Sorry. <laughs> you can yes, it. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> this has just been wonderful, Joanne. Thank you so much for joining us and, and kind of sharing your experiences and uh, some stories of uh, the past, you know, several years. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks everyone for watching and listening today. Have a great day.